That's right! Now is the time to open your mind. In our search for unknown, who knows what we will find. This is Emergency Exit. I am your host, Los, and with me, as always, is Nick, the fashion writer. How are you living, buddy? Uh, I'm, just, I'm just hanging out kicking ass, man. That's right. This is episode 24, and today... Is February 28th, 2017. Thank you guys for being with us again. We are broadcasting our signal to you from our deep underground military base here in blah, 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 blah. We can't tell you because it's a secret. Thank you guys for joining us. We have a very special, awesome, amazing show for you guys today. We talked to Dr. Richard Carrier. He is the author of Historicity of Jesus. And it well, was among others, among yes. among a, a, a plethora of information and reference books. books. He was just an amazing guy to talk to. You guys agree with me, right? Yeah, that was like, great. Indeed. You guys are going to hear about an hour and 20 minutes of us just getting down with the guy. So without further ado, let's talk to a kick-ass person as we present. Do-do. Fresh exit. That's right. We are here with Dr. Richard Carrier. How are you doing, bud? I'm doing great. Thank you for being on our show. So uh, you're welcome. <laughs> so you're talking to my name is Los, and we got Nick as well. Hello. And we have Matt, who actually brought your work to our attention. Hi, Richard. <laughs> awesome. Hello, Los, Nick, and Matt. Thank you. Matthew, actually, I wanted to make yeah, sure that was Matthew. Yeah, uh, it's named after ah. the, <laughs> the, Bible, right. the Bible character, obviously. So. Just like the gospel. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, precisely. So Matt uh, wanted to ask a few questions, and uh, why don't we just go ahead and jump right on it? Yeah, so, so, Matt. so I wanted to just jump right in right away. Um, Jesus is obviously a very um, famous character or historical person, maybe, um, especially in the United States, very popular. Um, so... Everyone is yeah. familiar with um, the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, but aside from those which chronicle uh, Jesus' life, 
what sort of, just for our listeners, what sort of uh, extra biblical evidence do we have for the historical Jesus? Well, there's, uh, it's all problematic. Um, there's, uh, the earliest evidence we have are the authentic epistles of Paul in the New Testament. Now, several of the letters attributed to Paul in the New, Test- in the New Testament are forgeries, um, and that's, that's the mainstream consensus. That's not a fringe view. That's pretty much uh, what experts all agree on now, is that there are several forged letters, and we can't rely on forgeries uh, as evidence. Um, but there are seven letters, at least seven letters of Paul, that are uh, deemed to be authentic, and uh, they're problematic in terms of how they refer to Jesus, but that would be they do talk about Jesus as a deity, and so the question is, do any of those references establish him as a historical person? Certainly, Paul and the early apostles he talks about believed that they were talking to a Jesus through revelations and visions, and then they thought they were getting information about him through scripture. So the question is, did they ever actually meet this guy? And that's where it gets pretty unclear. It's vague uh, in the way the letters, the letters that have survived uh, don't have any clear reference to that. Uh, so those are the epistles of Paul. Next. The evidence we have are the canonical gospels you referenced, uh, which span from about the, the epistles of Paul, by the way, are 50s AD, so about 20 years after right. Jesus would have existed. Uh, the gospels span about the year 70 to 120 AD, roughly somewhere in that span. The four gospels were written. Um, possibly other stuff was written in that period, but we don't know for sure. Uh, and um, so there's some things like the letter uh, of Hebrews, which letter to the Hebrews, which was not written by Paul, but we don't know who wrote it. Uh, and there's still debate as to when that was written. That might have been written in between the letters of Paul and the Gospels. Uh, and there's uh, one letter that outside the New Testament written uh, called One Clement uh, that also is debated when that was written. Uh, but I include that as evidence as well. But both Hebrews and One Clement are, again, very vague uh, about uh, whether Jesus was a person who, a man who walked around on the earth or whether he was a revealed deity. Uh, and we have the same problem with other evidence from that period. And that's uh, that's really all there is. I mean, there's a bunch of other like non-canonical gospels. Um, there's, like you said, the forged letters. There's uh, letters attributed to Peter, uh, one of which definitely is a forgery, and the other is uh, extremely, again, vague as to whether there was ever actually a historical man uh, walking around Galilee. So there's th- that's really it. And then there are a few passages in uh, non-Christian literature. Uh, starting in the 90s AD, we have the Antiquities of Josephus, and the, there's long been dispute as to whether the two references to Jesus in there were ever actually written by Josephus. I think the evidence is quite clear that they were not. Uh, but that's still that's a legitimate debate in the sense that there's a lot of scholars who agree that the, that Josephus never actually originally referenced Jesus. Uh, but even if he did, his his material appears to just come from Christians who are just quoting the Gospels at him, or the Gospels and Acts, or something to that effect. Uh, and then we have Tacitus and Pliny in the early second century. Uh, and then maybe there's there's a reference in Suetonius that actually doesn't refer to Jesus that uh, is disputed. Uh, but even the passage in Tacitus is vague as to where he got his information, or if he he even wrote that uh, material. There's there's a question whether the the key line in there was inserted centuries later and not actually written by Tacitus. And Pliny never uh, discusses Jesus as a historical person. He never says that he was a man uh, historically. So, um, and that's kind of it. After that, you just get more references that are just based on the Gospels. So really, it's the Gospels that established the historical character of Jesus for the first time. And then uh, those launched the legend, and then all subsequent legends and all subsequent references to historical Jesus 
derive from the Gospels. So it really comes down to, are the Gospels any kind of reliable source uh, for historical Jesus? And, and, and so that, that's one side of the question. And the other side really comes down to, do the epistles of Paul establish a historical Jesus or do they not? Outstanding. All right, awesome. That's I definitely agree on all that stuff, man. Awesome. Okay. So it's not like there was a, a definitive census being taken or something all the time. So there right. was someone going around, oh, and here is Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, no well, there, there were, of course. Uh, no one preserved any of those records. And I'll, I'll be fair to the advocates of historicity. We have no reason to expect those records would survive. So even if Jesus did exist, um, he would exist in census records of the period. Right. Uh, but all those uh, records were lost, and the earliest Christians were too few and too certain the world was going to end any moment. They probably didn't preserve any of that information, right. even if it existed, right? So, And we have a right. lot of other things we know for a fact existed. We, like, for example, the early Christian communities, even in the time of Paul, there would have been a lot more letters written, not just Paul's seven letters. There would have been, uh, like, Apollos and other, uh, other apostles would have been writing letters. Other churches have been writing letters. There would be contracts. There would be, uh, you know, all, all kinds of uh, literature and documentation developed in the early church certainly existed. We have none of it. So right. uh, so we know we've lost most of the evidence. And so that, that makes it really difficult to look through this very vague, problematic lens to try and figure out what really happened in the 30s AD at the origin of the religion. And, uh, and, and so that, that complicates both sides of the equation. So it, the fact that that evidence doesn't survive is not in and of itself proof that Jesus didn't exist. Um, it, it, you know, if, unless he was way more famous than, uh, or as famous as the Gospels claim, clearly the Gospels are fibbing about the fame of Jesus. He was not famous all across the province of Syria. Uh, he was not followed by thousands of people. Um, had those things been true, we would have a lot, definitely yeah, would have had totally. a lot more. If there's a guy with this much of a following performing miracles, there would be right. plenty of stories. Right. And, so, <laughs> or, yeah, that and so the, the, the credible theory of historicity and there are there are several credible theories of historicity. Uh, all play up the idea that oh he really wasn't that famous that that was that was an exaggerated legend built on top of him, uh, and that's entirely plausible. Uh, so so if we're going to compare theories of the origins of Christianity, did Jesus exist or not? I don't even consider the uh, super famous miraculous Jesus. That's uh, that Jesus obviously didn't exist, and and really the mainstream consensus is that he didn't exist. Um, what the mainstream view is that 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 there was a, a much more mundane Jesus that got all those legends and myths piled on top of him. And so we have to look at, compare that hypothesis, the, the hypothesis that they're actually arguing for, this, this other just sort of mundane uh, religious charismatic leader uh, who got the movement started versus this alternative explanation, which is that he actually began as a revelatory being that people only knew through visions uh, and, and that his death and resurrection and, and the whole uh, passion that he underwent took place in a mythical realm, in a cosmic realm, uh, away from, from human eyes. It, it could only be known through revelation and through scripture. Uh, and then the idea of him being a man running around Galilee was invented decades later uh, in a way that the, a lot of cosmic gods of the time had myths about them, placing them in history on earth, uh, were also written. The same kind of process occurred with other deities and demigods of the time. So that those are the two competing hypotheses. Um, they're both initially plausible. Uh, and so the question comes down to, where does the evidence really lean one way or the other on this? Excellent, okay. Richard. Um, so I was wondering if, um, so if we could get back into the the actual Gospels, the pretty much the only documents placing Jesus um, on Earth. Um, mm -hmm. What's that? 
that he just oh, okay. agreed with you. Um, so yeah, the so the gospels <laughs> written, you know, at least fifty to sixty, maybe longer than that after the events they uh, describe. Um, and no one really knows who wrote any of these gospels or where they were written. And we have like an estimate of when Mark, the first gospel was written. Um, it's probably around a hundred AD, give or take. Um, uh, yeah, it varies. Um, the, the traditional view in scholarship is that Mark was written in the seventies AD. Right. Because however, we don't actually have any evidence that that's the case. That's just the earliest it could have been written. Right. Because and of the, in uh, any other field in, in ancient history, in any other subject where people aren't desperate to have them as early as possible. Um, what we talk about is that there's a, there's a, a date before which it couldn't have been written and a date after which it couldn't have been written. And we say it was written sometime in that span of time. But we don't know when. Right. Uh, and really the, the span is about, uh, 70 to probably 90, 100 AD, somewhere in there. Um, it's entirely possible that Mark could have been written even after 100. It's just less likely. But yes, between 70 and 100 is probably when it was written. Um, we don't really know when in the, that those 30 years it was written because we don't have anyone in those 30 years referring to it existing, right? So right. we don't have any way to anchor it uh, date-wise. Um, in fact, the first reference we have to Mark is actually after all the other Gospels, even though we know they were based on Mark. Oh, the earliest weird. reference we have... To, yeah, the earliest... Mark was not a popular Gospel. Um, the earliest reference we have to the to Mark is after Papias, and Papias wrote somewhere between uh, 120 and 150 AD, and he only seems to know about... Uh, or he knows about Matthew and Mark, so he's the one who talks about Matthew and Mark. Doesn't seem to know about... Um, uh, Luke or John, for example. And so that's the first we start to hear about the Gospel of Mark, but um, is that. And we can't just definitively date Papias either. Papias was not preserved. Uh, this is another vexing problem, is a lot of this evidence was not saved. We only have quotations of him in other authors centuries later. Uh, so it's very vexing to try and figure out what actually happened when so much evidence was destroyed. So... Uh... So um, the Gospels, I mean, they do tell stories. Obviously, a lot of it is supernatural. Um, but would you would you like to talk about kind of the theory that um, the Gospels themselves are parables or allegories for, you know, the church's teachings, the developing Christian? Yeah. 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 And that was a common way of communicating in uh, similar religions of the time. So it's actually, it, it makes sense in context. The best book I recommend people read on this is John Dominic Crossan's book, uh, The Power of Parable. Power of parable. Uh, the power of parable. It's a really good read. It's short. It's written for a a, com, you know, a lay audience. It's uh, and really explains this concept that the gospels themselves are really extended parables. Now, in in the Gospel of Mark, which you know, this is the earliest gospel that we know of, mm -hmm. uh, in the Gospel of Mark, in in chapter four, it has Jesus tell his first parable, and then he he takes the disciples uh, away in private and explains to them that the truth is not going to be told to the public, that all the public is going to be told are these stories, these stories about these things that happened. But the truth of the stories is not the, that the things happen, but whatever they symbolize, the sort of moral of the story is the truth of the story. And so he explains to them, and only initiates will be told this. He says, you know, only to you will the mysteries of the kingdom of God be told. Uh, only insiders are given the, the secret knowledge of what the story means. Right. Now, this is... Uh, a really classic example of the author signaling to the reader that, oh, by the way, this is how you should read my whole book. Um, that he's actually saying that, that in the broader context, the, the meta context of this is that the gospel itself is one of these parables 
that it's not meant to be taken literally. It's the insiders are told the secret meaning of all of the stories in it. Now, when we get to like the second century, we start to see uh, something develop. And it may have existed in the first century. We're not sure. But in the second century, we see clear references to, and definitely in the third century, we see references to this double theory of truth, this theory of double truth. Um, and Origen is the best articulator of this. And he says that there's the, the Gospels are meant to be taken literally by ignorant outsiders and lower-ranking Christians who are too uneducated to, to be convinced by the truth, so they need these stories to convince them. Totally. But, Very clever. But the real meaning, yeah, the real meaning of the stories is what the elites and the educated are taught, and the real meaning is the symbolic meaning, the allegorical meaning, not the literal meaning. Uh, and so this, there was this idea in the church uh, that the literal meaning was intended for the lower-ranking members of the church and for outsiders, uh, but that was not supposed to be taken literally by the elite. But of course, this meant that the elite had to keep this uh, under wraps, yeah. right? Uh, Origen is one of the few scholars of the time who actually put it in a book so that we could read it, um, probably assuming that the illiterate masses who were read this read the Gospels out in the churches would never read We'd his never book and find that. out that they were scammed, right? right. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, that theory definitely existed, and we know that existed in other religions of the time, so it was not unique to Christianity. This uh, Plutarch writes about this being the practice in Osiris cult, which has a lot of similarities to Jesus' cult. That's right. And in Osiris cult, it's the same kind of thing. The, the true story was that Osiris underwent his death and resurrection in a cosmic realm away from man, uh, and then the, the historical version of it that had him on Earth and have him die and rise from the dead on Earth— um, that was all allegory. It was all fake. Uh, but the, the lower ranking people, the people who weren't initiated into the priesthood or higher ranks of the mystery religion were told that the historical stories were true, but not told that they were actually not true. The real meaning of them, they were just allegories for the real meaning, which was this cosmic story. So we know this theory of double truth. We know this idea of parabolizing your demigod with a, putting him in history with a fake history. Uh, and then not telling the, the lower ranking people that's what you're doing and only telling the higher ranking people that's what you're doing. All of this was a, a practice at the time that was known, a known way to practice religion at the time. So when we see the Christians doing it, we, we recognize this. It fits a pattern that we see in other religions of the same time. So it actually fits in context. And so once you see that, you start to understand how you should be looking at the Gospels. Now, as time goes on, the Gospels become more and more forceful about their attempt to persuade people as to their historicity. Mm -hmm. John is a classic example where he even invents fake witnesses to attest to the historicity oh, yeah. of what oh, he's writing. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, but uh, And that's a great uh, story that the uh, who, who the witness is that he keeps in the current version of God, the Gospel of John. Now, every, the mainstream experts on John agree our Gospel of John has gone through multiple edits. So it's been worked over by multiple authors. The current version of John is actually out of order. So someone took the original John and moved it out of order, deleted some sections, added some sections. So it's been worked over and altered. So, so it's really the John we have like now is not the original. Yeah, oh, right. It's really a true word of God. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's such a true well, word. I have a story to tell about that, that reasoning as well. We'll get to Mark. But um, no, but the, the idea uh, becomes more and more that form. But you still see the symbolism and allegory in John, like his whole Cana narrative, which does not exist in any of the synoptic gospels. No one had ever heard of the Cana story. John invents it. Uh, but again, he invents it to create this allegory for the real meaning of the gospel right. and the message he wants to teach. Right. So we see the examples of that. And in, in chapter 10 of my book on the historicity of Jesus, I go through in detail 
all four Gospels, and show even from existing peer-reviewed literature in the field how pretty much a lot of scholars look at these Gospels and are finding their allegorical meaning uh, and, and agreeing that they're not literally true. So this is not you know, a maverick position. And when you start to see all of the evidence put together, it starts to become very clear that the Gospels were not really written uh, based on historical sources. They're not recorded memories. They're, no, they're, they're well-crafted literary pieces that have deep symbolic meaning and are, are extremely tightly and elegantly crafted to convey those meanings. They're, they're not just sort of this hodgepodge of memories that were passed down. That's, that's not how the Gospels were composed at all. Right. And I just want to jump in and uh, mention one of the more famous uh, Gospel parables uh, was that Jesus hates figs. Yes, oh, yes. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we absolutely love that. When we were doing uh, all this research, we we thought we said, you know, God hates figs. But I think those uh, those uh, Christian haters are the definitely... Westboro Baptist Church has the wrong vowel. Yeah, yeah, they definitely <laughs> put the wrong one in there, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So misinterpretation. Yeah, um, I used that, of course, in in on the historicity of Jesus, we and I've used it in several talks because it's the easiest one to explain to people. Yeah it's the clearest example of, of a fake story that there's no way anyone remembered that happening. There's no way that's history. There's no way Mark believed it was history when he right. wrote it. Uh, as the, the way he tells the story, even if you take it literally true, exactly as written, uh, he had, so this is the story for the, your listeners who don't know. Okay. Um, Thank this you. is in, in the gospel of Mark. So Jesus is walking along and Mark says, uh, Jesus was hungry and he saw this uh, fig tree off in the distance and he, so he walked up to the fig tree, even though, and Mark says, even though it was not the season for figs, Jesus walks up to the tree and sees there's no figs there. Exactly as Mark says, he wouldn't find any because it's not the season for figs. And Jesus gets angry and he curses the fig tree and says, may you never bear fruit ever again. <laughs> um, and then a little bit later, they all come back to the tree. Like, I think it's 24 hours. Like a day later, they come back to the tree and it's withered to its very roots. And so here's this, this miracle of the fig tree. No, first of all, we know this is not true because people can't wither fig trees. You cannot do that. So, <laughs> I mean, he's really hangry. I mean, you yeah. got supernatural powers. You got to be more careful about that. <laughs> Just on that, we know it's fake. But even if, <laughs> right. imagine, even if we imagine Jesus had the supernatural X-Man power of withering fig trees, like even if we grant that that's true, why would he wither a fig tree and curse it for not bearing figs out of season? This makes no sense. Not it makes all. Jesus look insane. Right. Yes. So why would Mark make Jesus look insane? Um, well, because he's not. He does not intend you to take this literally. He does not actually mean for you to actually think that Jesus got angry at, you know, irrationally angry at a tree for not bearing figs out of season. No, no, no. This is all an allegory. It's all meaningful. And, and Mark signals this in a variety of ways. And I get this from the peer reviewed literature, too. This isn't just something that I found by myself. But he Mark wraps this story around the clearing of the temple. Right. It's the, the Jesus assault on the temple cult. And so Jesus comes, sees a tree, curses it, goes, does the clearing of the temple scene or, you know, like you've turned this into a den of thieves. And then he comes out and then we see the fig tree has been withered. And and, and then the message comes like, oh, do you see now? Do you understand now? You know, hint, hint, wink, wink. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the fig tree is is a symbol. It's an allegory for the temple cult itself. And it's really that whole story, the whole sequence Mark is explaining why God allowed pagan heathens, Romans, to march in and not only destroy his holy city, but destroy the temple and, and destroy the house of God and end the temple cult, which, you know, the entirety of Judaism was, was dependent on the atonement ceremony of the temple cult. So it was, it was really a catastrophic existential 
event uh, for Judaism. And Mark is explaining why God did that. Why did God allow that to happen? By having Jesus allegorically explain it through the fig tree. And the fig tree represents the temple cult. And what happened is, is Jesus, in the role of God, is saying, it is no longer the season for you, so may you bear no more fruit again. So it's, in other words, God is saying it's it's done. We, I don't need the temple cult anymore. We're going to replace it with Christianity uh, or with the gospel, essentially. So so the whole thing, the whole fig tree, the fact that you know God withers the fig tree for no longer being seasoned for, for the fruit that it bears is all allegory. It's not meant to be taken literally, but it's written as though it's literally true. Yeah. Right. And when you see that and you start to look chapter after chapter after chapter, Everything that happens to Jesus, everything Jesus does is like that. It's it's all parable. It's all allegory for something else. Right. Uh, and and then once you realize that, you know you're not looking at you're not looking at a memoir. You're not looking at uh, records of of memories of things that people experienced with Jesus. This is not coming from apostles who said, you know what? There was this day that Jesus walked this fig tree. First, <laughs> that's not what's going on here. And and once you get to that point, it's like a paradigm shift in the way you understand what you're looking at. Uh, and, and it changes everything in terms of how you see the evidence. Right. Okay. What weird. What, just what a weird metaphor to pick, though, for something that big. All metaphors are weird. I, I mean, go oh, look true. at like Greek, <laughs> Greek myths are bizarre. Like the, the, <laughs> the, you know, the, the labors of Hercules and, you know, Hephaestus spewing out of the head of Athena. Like oh, these yeah. are like, <laughs> it's wild. There's, it's, these it's are all metaphors. They, these all have symbolic meaning. Um, how do they're people, all bizarre. How do people so, think of these uh, these stories? And I, yeah, I, I guess that's more what I was saying. Like we're ending the temple cult yeah. and starting Christianity. So to uh, to break that down into normal talk, we're here's a story a about tree. a fig tree. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's such a weird no, connection to make. This was their this was their art, right? Uh, and I, but I, by them I mean not just the Jews, but I mean all religious people. So of the era, like the, the pagans and the Jews are both doing this. They're both creating these sort of allegorical stories about things. Because they thought this was neat, uh, they thought it was powerful, right? It's uh, they're they're playing off of the, the this powerful mo emotion that you have. So when you read the story and then someone explains it to you, now suppose you are in awe and you're you're a religious person, you're very faithful and you're a very religious person, and someone explains to you the real meaning of it, it's brilliant, yeah, right? It's, and you go yeah. like, whoa, yeah. that's amazingly brilliant! I Profound. totally get it. Yeah. And you have this sort of uh, endorphin-related emotional response to it. And this actually makes you more attached to what you're being taught, right? It be, right. makes you more convinced this must come from God because that emotion, how could it, how could I feel this way if this isn't the Holy Spirit uh, moving me? And so this idea and this, you know, the pagans were doing the same thing. Like the, the realization meant that there's some sort of, you know, spirit in contact with the divine that's revealing this, this brilliance, this, this brilliant secret that now you are in on uh, that was hidden in this sort of really clever and artistic way. Uh, it's playing on that emotion. I think that was very common in the religions of the period. And it was the kind of the way really throughout the religions, how you communicated religious ideas. So, so it was something you grew up in and, Almost an and art form, it, it, was the, like. it was the world you breathed. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was the art form that you lived and breathed. And that's, okay. that's why they did this sort of thing. So they thought they were, you know, really clever for coming up with these things. Yeah, I would say, I mean, that's, <laughs> so interesting. So basically, the, the Gospels appear to be parables, um, not his, historical uh, writings. And then uh, Paul's Jesus appears to be a celestial entity. Uh, so like defenders of historicity might say, well, when has this ever happened? You know, like historicizing a, a mythical or a celestial being. Uh, would you like to talk about um, euhemerization? 
Yeah. Uh, and of course, I, I document this in on the historicity of Jesus. So people who are all of the evidence and scholarship and stuff, it's in there. Uh, but yes, this is commonly happening. Uh, Osiris is a classic example. Osiris is a really good example because unlike most other religions and most other provinces, uh, we have really good records for Egypt uh, because the Egyptians love to carve shit in stone. That's right. And we're doing it, <laughs> right. And we're doing it for thousands of years. So that, nice. so we have vast and really good records uh, of all of the pharaohs for like thousands of years. Like we don't have that kind of, I think maybe Babylon, we might have something close to that with their uh, clay tablets mm -hmm. um, because, you know, baked clay also lasts a long damn time. Um, and so we have really good records for that. So we know Osiris never existed. We can really confirm that there was no Osiris. He, he was never historical. Um, but all of the stories told about Osiris portrayed him as a historical pharaoh, put him in history as an actual person who walked around the earth in a particular historical period. Um, and so we that's that's the clearest example. We have other examples like Romulus almost certainly didn't exist. Hercules almost certainly didn't exist. Uh, Dionysus is a good example, again, because we know he was a god. He was a worshipped god even before legends placed him in history. So <laughs> so we because we have him in some of the the Minoan tablets, right? Some of the Minoan writings uh in in this the proto-Greek stuff. Uh so we we know that god was worshiped as a celestial deity even before uh people invented myths about him. And when they did invent myths about him, they put him in history around the time of the supposed Trojan War. Um but uh or, or even later than that, uh for example. So the, where they put him in history is you know, varies. But um, so we have a lot of these examples of these guys who, who these gods who were celestial deities before they were put in history. And th th this um, is, is referred to as euhemerization. And that that's a misunderstood concept. It, it comes from the author euhemerus. We actually don't have euhemerus's writings. We only have other people writing about what he did. Uh, but what they tell us he did is that he wrote a book in which he claimed that Zeus and Uranus were actual historical kings on earth and that they were deified later. Now that's false, we know that's false. Uh, so he's basically inventing this. Um, now why he invented it, uh, there's debate. It looks like maybe he was trying, possibly he was trying to make fun of religion or he was trying to discredit religion or he was trying to rationalize religion. The reasons he did it are not relevant. It's the process that's significant because it's the process that then became popular. Uh, he started this, it was, it was going on before him, but he's the most famous one to have done it. So it started to become a very common process. And Plutarch refers to this, uh, Euhemerus, as sort of, he regards him not necessarily as the founder, but as sort of the, the paradigmatic example of this phenomenon of taking these gods who are not on earth and turning them into historical figures and writing stories about them, just as Euhemerus did. Uh, and some people were doing this again, to make fun of the gods. Sometimes they were doing it to rationalize the gods. But we know from Plutarch, because Plutarch actually says, for the case of Osiris, for example, some people were doing it specifically to create this theory of double truth, to create this sort of allegorical version that would be told to the illiterate masses and to hide a, a deeper truth that they would be able to feel cool about for insiders to be told and so they could feel more important, just like Scientology, basically. Absolutely. I was going to mention Scientology. There you yeah. go. <laughs> It's very similar to what Scientology is doing. And there's a reason why that process works and why it, it sucks people in and keeps them in. Uh, it's it's a thousands of years old uh, tactic uh, in terms of how to convince people to remain fanatical for your religion. Well, it's tried and true, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Over 2,000 years practice. Sadly. Sadly, but yes. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately. Okay. So, so I, I 
here? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, so all of this definitely makes sense to me. And I mean, once, once you explain it, um, I think a lo- one thing a lot of people might be wondering is like, uh, sort of the academic response or like basically why haven't scholars, um, questioned the historicity of Jesus before and kind of like what, what, what's wrong with the methodology, I guess. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the answer is they have, uh, but they get ignored or punished, uh, for oh. doing so. And I think, I think the main reason right now is that it's uh, it's a dangerous concept. It's a third rail no one wants to touch. Yeah. Uh, so they'd rather just stay away from it. Uh, and, I mean, uh, of course, the Christian apologists, Christian fundamentalists, Christian believers can't have this be the case. So they, they, they are hardly biased, strongly biased against this at all, right? So you really can't count them in the conversation. The, the people we really want to look at are why do the non-Christian or uh, or liberal Christian scholars, why are they hesitant to accept this? Uh, Bart Ehrman, for example, or Mark Goodacre, or wh- whoever you want to point out who has this very liberal, is willing to to cast out certain things, willing to admit certain things. Uh, a lot of it is is fake, or um, you know, not, it's not a holy text that they have to defend. Why are they resistant to it? Uh, and I think it varies in a lot of for a lot of reasons for a lot of different people. Uh, and I think the main reason, though, is that it will make you very unpopular if you were to side with this. And also, a lot of scholars have invested a lot of their careers in making arguments for the historical or arguments about the historical Jesus, not arguments for a historical Jesus, but arguments about in the sense that they have these theories like uh, Reza Aslan and uh, uh, Bermejo Rubio has they, they have these theories of what they think. Jesus was. Now they've staked their careers on this. Now, if you were to say, well, well, Jesus didn't even exist, they'd have to admit that all their work is worthless, that it was a waste of time, that they've been looking at the, the evidence wrong and all of this. That's a hard thing to do, right? Sure. But also there's this, you know, a lot of the money in Jesus studies, I mean, a lot, it's probably all the money in Jesus studies in terms of grants and in terms of funding for departments, in terms of universities, even in secular uh, universities, a lot of this money comes from religious believers and they're not going to be happy if your professor starts advocating this. And we see an example like Thomas Brody, who's a scholar who started advocating the non-existence of Jesus. And he was Catholic, uh, a member of the Catholic church hierarchy. And they just basically forced him into retirement and said, shut up, dude. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we see, and, and usually that's why you see the, the leading experts are either people who are untouchable, uh, like Hector Avalos, agrees that the historicity of Jesus is doubtable. He's, he's an agnostic about the historicity of Jesus. Uh, but he's at a secular university. Um, he's uh, got a tenured position. Uh, and he's a maverick in, in general. Like, he's willing to speak truth to power. He's willing to make these, you know, dangerous statements because he, he's built a whole career out of, like, challenging the consensus on a lot of things. Uh, so he's a rare bird in that, in that fact. And other scholars, too, the same thing, um, or they're retired. Uh, Thomas Thompson, for example, is a renowned biblical scholar, and he's the one who went through the hell uh, in the 70s when he argued that the, that Moses was non-existent, right? Uh, that Moses was mythical, and Abraham uh, were mythical, and people tried to destroy his career. The whole industry tried to destroy his career, tried to get him out, tried to interfere with his ability to get jobs, his ability to speak at conferences and all kinds of things. Oh, wow. uh, and in fact, it's it's a it's a sad legacy that a lot of scholars who still remember it are embarrassed by. Um, but it created this precedent. Everybody thinks like, oh shit, look what happened to Thomas Thompson. 
we better not go that same route with Jesus because, you know, that shit, same shit might happen to us. Absolutely. Uh, and so I, 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 so I see there's probably an in, implicit fear of touching this. Right. And what's, what's happened is uh, they all sing a party line without seriously considering the evidence. And, and to give you an example of what I mean, um, now I'll, I'll mention Craig Evans, even though he's a Christian apologist and a Christian fundamentalist, he probably – uh, it hardly counts anyway, because there's no way in hell he could ever admit Jesus didn't exist, even if he believed it. Um, but, uh, so we did a debate, uh, it was coordinated a debate, um, in, at a university on the historicity of Jesus. Uh, I got my book to him, uh, way in advance of it said, yeah, read that. Let's debate this. And when we got to the debate, it was very clear that he had not even read the book. Um, right. he did, had no idea uh, what my thesis was. Uh, in his own presentation, it was clear he was arguing against things that I already conceded that, that weren't things that I argued and did not argue against anything I did argue. And when I got up there, I presented my actual position that's in the book and he was flabbergasted. He had no idea how to respond to it. Uh, and you can see that. I, I wrote about this. There's a, a blog of mine about it. Um, and then that links to the video of the debate. So you can actually watch this happen. And this is very, very typical of how it's being treated. Like, in any other field, let's say like let's say science, right? Let's in in a scientific field, and you challenge the consensus, you publish a peer-reviewed monograph or article, that, you know, overthrowing some theory that's been mainstream up till then. How scientists handle that is that they all then look at uh, that information, and then they either they critique it, they engage with it. Uh, they either refute it or they realize that it can't be refuted or they try to replicate it or realize it, it it does replicate or it can't be replicated or whatever. Point being is they read the article and they actually engage with it. If they have criticisms, the criticisms are based on what the article actually says, on what the book actually says. Um, that doesn't happen in Jesus studies. They ignore peer-reviewed literature that they don't like. Uh, they don't read it. They don't respond to it. Um, instead, they spew propaganda. They spew things that they were told, things that they assume are true. With, that don't actually engage the actual argument. So they're not actually reading up on their own peer-reviewed literature. That, and so to me, this kind of discredits Jesus studies. Uh, it, it seems to be largely driven by this sort of uh, prestige and dogmatism rather than a genuine interest in the quest for the truth. And, and I think there are exceptions in there, but the exceptions are scholars who are scared or too busy. Like it's too much emotional, it's too much emotional labor to take this on. Like I think there are a lot of scholars who genuinely believe um, in the quest for the truth. Uh, and, and I, there are some scholars who even told me like some leading figures in the, in the field have told me that they are also agnostic about the historicity of Jesus, but they won't come out to talk about it because if they're, if they were to take a position on it, they're first of all going to get hugely criticized and attacked and, and punished in various ways. Uh, but even if they believe that they could defend the position, that takes a lot of work, like, right. So you have to like Absolutely. do tons of research. You have to really know what you're talking about so you can really defend yourself on that position. And it's just easier to go do something else. Right. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so yeah. I think that that's another, that's another problem. And it is because of this, it's socially unpopular within the field, uh, to even discuss this topic. And that's been the response in general, like actual academics have ignored it. Uh, or have responded to it by not even reading the book, um, or say the most weirdest, ridiculous things. I just did a, an article recently that the first time, well, it's uh, on the historicity of Jesus has been reviewed twice in academic journals, uh, one by Raphael Lataster, who gave it a positive review, um, uh, and another time by uh, this other scholar uh, who I just blogged about recently, uh, Pedersen, I think her name is, um, 
but her review is just inexplicably weird. Uh, and it doesn't engage with the book at all. Um, it, uh, and even it ends with the complaint that the, that I'm too concerned with the truth. Uh, and <laughs> <What>? <laughs> wow. why is that a complaint? I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, isn't that the point? It, it's just a very, it's a very strange review. I, I blogged about that. Uh, let me find that so I can mention it to people, but, um, Actually, I should mention in general, there is, uh, I collect, uh, on one particular blog, I collect all the responses to the book, well, to both books, Proving History and to On the History of City of Jesus. Um, and see, hold on, let's see. Uh, responses, here we go. I have one blog that, that warehouses all this stuff. So every time something new comes out, uh, I blog about it, and then I put a link on this one blog. And it's, the blog is called, I'll just read the title, List of responses to defenders of the historicity of Jesus. Okay. So if you, so if someone Google's that, my name and that title, you'll get it, uh, and it's on my blog. And and that, I, like I said, I, I update that constantly, so uh, it's it's always updated. You can see, and it's alphabetical uh, by scholar. Um, wow. Okay. But uh, we yeah, can so, see how the other side responds right. to your. And, and the one I was just talking about is Christina Pedersen. Um, okay. So I have I have a. Thing on that, but I have lots of others. Uh, but they, mostly, it's insofar as there are scholars at all responding, um, they're either not scholars in the field of history, um, or they're Christian apologists, uh, or they're responding on blogs and not in academic journals. Uh, really, the only two academic journal reviews, like I said, are uh, Letaster and Pedersen, um, and uh, it's well worth comparing the two. <laughs> Uh, academic reviews because you know Lataster actually analyzes and talks about the book and clearly engages with the book, uh, and even when he has criticisms, like they're valid, like, you know, in, you know, plausible criticisms that you know make sense. Sure. Um, but overall, his, his conclusion is positive. If you compare it with Christina Pedersen, you can see the vast difference in the way they're engaging with the book. is It's it's bizarre, I have to say. Interesting. Fuck. Oh, uh, so we were watching. Uh... A speech of yours, and you were talking about the the cosmic Jesus. I believe it was Paul's writing about uh, cosmic mm-hmm. Jesus died under the moon, was buried in space. Was buried in space, and I was like, "Oh my yeah. god, that's like Spock. Spock is Jesus." Um, <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit, that's true. Yeah, you, and, you know, he was half human. He was born of a of a human mother. Uh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so we wanted wanted to. No, if you yeah, no, if but, you thought about the Spock not far connection. Off. I mean, uh, Spock of course is not uh, not buried on Venus, but um, <laughs> but he, uh, no, it's but it's he does true come back. That, on the... Yeah, that touch has got to remember, of course, that the writers of this period, mo- ever, most people of this period, not everyone, but most people of the period when the Gospels existed, they're geocentrists, right? So they believe right. the universe is small. There's only one sun. Uh, the stars are just lights uh, at a certain distance. Uh, the calculated distance, I think one of the calculated distance was that the stars are 90 million uh, or 90 million miles away, um, which is mm. happens to be the distance to the actual distance to the sun. But right. anyway, uh, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> uh, but but the universe is really small and it's all geocentric and it's it's in these layers. Right. So you have the sort of like the corrupt, fucked up center part. Uh, where all the bad shit happens. And then as you get higher and higher, you get more perfection and more greatness and, and wonderfulness and stuff. And and the levels are tied to the planets. So uh, And the planets included the moon and the sun because it's all geocentric, right? right. So, um, so you go to the first level 
the moon is the place where you where you hang out if you're in the in if you're going to be uh, at the uh, what's called the um, the the level of the firmament. So you have the the atmosphere extends to the moon according to the ancient cosmology, and then the moon is the place you hang out if you're in the first heaven. That's that's the place you land. The next heaven is uh, either the sun or Venus, depending on how the the different systems had different orders. And the next heaven would be Mars, and then you have Mercury or whatever, whatever the order is, it varied. So each planet was the place you'd go stop on. So they really do believe like they were like angels and things living on the planets. Uh, so it, it is very much kind of this extraterrestrial view. Um, extraterrestrial. <laughs> <laughs> right. But there was the belief also that Satan and his demons had these sky castles, that they had these, you know, actual places they lived deep in the sky below the moon, right? There's up in the clouds, just so far up you couldn't see them. Right. Uh, but they had these, you know, their gardens and all these other things up there. Uh, and, and you know, probably that's where Jesus, in, in the cosmic myth, and certainly in the one version of it we have in the ascension of Isaiah, um, Jesus is buried probably in one of these places. Not on the moon. It might have been on the moon, but that's weird. Uh, so, I doubt. That's, that's a lot different hell than Dante gave us, I guess. That's right. Yes. No, no. That's that's a good point because the idea of the underground burning hell uh, is kind of a later development uh, in Christian history. Throughout Jewish and pagan lore, now the, the Jews had the idea of Sheol. The pagans had the idea of of Hades. Um, this is very similar to Sumerians had a similar thing where it was this kind of underworld, right? And the Egyptians right. had this too, this, this sort of underworld, uh, but it was usually dark and dusty. It wasn't hot and burning. Like, the idea of the hot burning came from the Zoroastrians, but the Zoroastrian hot and burning was in the future. It was the, this great cosmic fire was going to burn everything up and everybody who was good would, would be fine because you'd be immune to the fire and everybody who was bad, the badness in them would burn and how bad you were would depend on oh, how long wow. it took you to burn yeah how bad you were would depend on how long it took you to burn off your badness um <laughs> and you know if you're totally bad you would burn away entirely but if you were like partially bad a certain amount of time you it would all burn away and you would get to be resurrected as is a you know person of light or whatever um and the stoics adopted this and, and started incorporating it with the hades theory so now this flaming thing exists currently under under the world and it's a reincarnation thesis combining it with plato and and stoics and the zoroastrian beliefs this whole sort of hodgepodge of stuff gets piled together um but when uh but usually when like a lot of jewish demonology the idea was that satan and the demons lived in the sky uh they didn't live in hell that that was not like hell might have been there but even if it was there the demons weren't there yet right because god had ended the world of hell then well he had God hadn't overthrown the demons and Satan yet, right? So they hadn't been cast into hell. When you read the book of Revelation, that comes in the future, right? That's when Satan and everybody gets thrown into hell. And they get thrown into hell to be punished, not to rule it. Like, that's right. not even a thing, right? <laughs> and they're punished by—they're tortured and tormented. And all people who go to hell are tortured and tormented by good angels of God, not by Satan and his demons, right? That was the original Christian idea of hell is God will send his angels down to torture you forever because, you know, God's a dick, right? Yeah. But— uh, <laughs> <laughs> it totally is. And then Revelation says, you know, hey, Satan's going to be among the people and stuff who are who suffer eternally, tortured eternally in hell. It took centuries later before this idea emerged that Satan would then rule hell and it would be Satan and his angels, the fallen angels who would be and the demons who would be torturing people in hell. That that was a centuries later concept. It, it evolved in the Middle Ages. Um, you know, by the time of Dante, you know, like it, everything had changed. So 
what he's describing does not would be completely unfamiliar to a Christian of the first century. Like it would be a bizarre description of, of the, what gotcha. they thought the cosmic reality was. Wow. Um, well, back to the, uh, the, the, the Jesus in space, I guess, or the Spock joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so that was, that was Isaiah, but then there was also, was it Paul that talked about, well, not necessarily in space, but he was just more of a, of a God being, and it was more revelatory and not necessarily physical mm-hmm. interactions with Jesus. Right. And so, so I was, just, oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just wondering why that account or that, that version exists when we also have Mark coming along saying, no, this was totally a guy that walked around and told us all to be groovy and hang out with each other. Like <laughs> as long as they're, <laughs> as long as they're, you know, altering texts and doing whatever all they do while they've revised the Bible over and over and over again, why would they leave like these contradicting, uh, versions of this, of this one being, uh, or why not change well, Paul's to be a physical being or vice versa? Yeah, well, they kind of did. Um, okay. First of all, there's tons of forgeries in Paul's name in which that's the case. Um, but also, uh, we know we don't have everything Paul wrote. In fact, there's whole sections of his letters that are missing. Like uh, 1 Corinthians 9 starts an argument that clearly is responding to something that's not in 1 Corinthians 8. There's something's been cut out. <laughs> okay. Uh, and there's a lot of other... There's a lot of other examples in the letters of Paul where things have been removed. In fact, as many scholars think that the letters we have are actually pastiches, they're actually multiple letters that have been, the pieces have been pulled out of and stuck back together into longer letters, that the original letters were shorter and there were more of them and had different material in them. But what we have is clearly missing tons of stuff. So when they selected these letters, they clearly chose and edited the letters mostly by omission rather than insertion. Um, and I think probably in the transition period, this made more sense for them uh, because they wanted to depend on the authority of these letters and not add too much. Uh, they eventually started adding stuff. There's examples of them doctoring things and adding material. Um, but they were uh, they didn't do that. That wasn't their main mode. Their main mode was just to get rid of the stuff they didn't like and keep the stuff that they could rationalize. Huh. And, and that's what happened to the letters of Paul, right? They, they kept stuff that's ambiguous enough that they can interpret it any way they want okay. and got rid of all the other stuff. So there may have been letters of Paul that were much more explicit uh, than we know. And th- there's, that's what they did with all the evidence, right? So, right. Uh, like, like they got rid of tons of stuff, like the ascension of Isaiah. Uh, they, uh, first of all, they got rid of it mostly. Like it's only in very few pieces that we have manuscripts of it at all. It's barely survived. And it only survived in different traditions in which Christians meddled with it and added to it in different ways. Uh, they cut pieces out or they added pieces and we know they did because we have multiple different uh, traditions, textual traditions, that show Christians meddling with it in different ways. So they, they didn't like it, so they fucked with it and changed it uh, to Damn produce it, what they wanted. Yeah, so, so this is the kind of, so they're destroying evidence, they're altering evidence. Um, we have an example in 2 Peter, which we know is a forgery, but in 2 Peter, he's, he's attacking these fellow Christians, he says, who believe that the gospel stories are just cleverly devised myths, and he aims to refute this by saying, "Hey, I was there on the on the you know the during the transfiguration on the mountain, um, and so clearly it was a historically true event. Uh, it wasn't mythical, but this is a forgery. So this is someone faking a letter from Peter to refute these other Christians who are arguing that it's all allegory. Uh, so, but we don't have any writings from those Christians that they were attacking. We we only have the attack on them." And this is true. This is true throughout Christian literature. We don't have any of the critics of Christianity. We have very little of the other sects of Christianity. We only have the attacks on them. 
So we have Irenaeus uh, attacking all these other Christians who are talking about cosmic Jesuses and cosmic births and allegories and stuff. We don't get to read what they actually wrote because we don't get to see that. Uh, that stuff is all destroyed. We only get to see the polemic of Irenaeus against it. Uh, we have Celsus and Porphyry writing these treatises against Christianity, not preserved. All we get to read are the attacks of their critics, the Christians rebutting them and quoting them selectively. We don't get to actually read the critics. The Christians destroyed the actual criticisms well, yeah. and only kept responses. So this is how they treated literature generally. So this is how they've distorted uh, the evidence. And I think what happened generally is this idea of the literalist version being necessary to control the illiterate masses, that version, that idea won out uh, and became more and more important in the political battle for control of the church. And so it was that sect that, that really pushed the historicity angle that became politically dominant uh, and was the one that just happened to have the ear of Constantine when he decided Christianity would be the definitive religion of the of the That's empire. Um, and so the, the end result is that the, that the historicity defenders were the ones who prevailed and got to decide what texts would survive and in what condition and what would be in them and so on. Uh, and, and this, and we know this is true. All of that, I, what I just said is totally true. Uh, the, the debate hinges around what was destroyed, what was in it, right? So what did these other sects of Christians say? What, how early did they go? Right. Um, what, what, what are the actual beliefs of Paul? What was the actual Christianity of Paul's time like? Um, so much evidence has been destroyed. We, we can only, recreate pieces of it. We really can't recreate all of it. So we don't know, right? Um, and, and this distortion is a problem. It makes it very difficult to reconstruct what happened. And, and there's n very little else in ancient history that's this fucked up, let's be honest, that has this <laughs> much forgery. Like you could pick any other historical figure and you will not find anywhere near as much forged evidence for that historical figure. You won't find anywhere near as much um, divergence in terms of the theology and weird things written about them and so on. Uh, and or as much destruction of ev deliberate destruction of evidence, right. deliberate altering. Of evidence. This is very propaganda like. Much, uh... Right, it's very much characteristic of Christianity. The, the other religions saw some of all of these things. This is not unique to Christianity, but none of it to the scale that we see in Christianity. So it's it's makes it very difficult for historians to to know what really happened, and we we, we just have to approach it like detectives looking at clues sure. that have sort of survived this process. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the best way to, to take over, I guess, is to delete any conflicting account. Yes. You know? yeah. And then when everybody's only left with what you say, then they really have no choice but to that's believe right. what you say, right? That is the history of fascism in a nutshell. Yay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Carrier, I have, we have just a couple more questions for you, but um, we would love to— for you to, well, we talk a lot about conspiracy theories on this show, and we don't subscribe to very many of them. Bohemian Grove is something that we do subscribe to because it actually <laughs> wait, happens, but we don't wait, know exactly. Uh, Bohemian Grove. I don't know that. What are you talking about? There are, in the middle of July, there is a group of elites that get together um, and they do some gay stuff out there. That's as far as we know. Well, I've not heard of this. I don't know they anything about it. They supposedly do like a mock human sacrifice, well, and that's that. where they decide who's the next president, and they pick all the— Okay, okay. So they don't, allegedly. They, allegedly. But we, we allegedly. know that these elites do get together in the middle of July and come out there. We don't know exactly what happens out there, but we it's, do know that that for happens. for more than just butt stuff. Like, that can't be the only reason. <laughs> sure, okay. Not everybody's taking a month-long vacation to go get it on. That's like the worst— All right. 
<laughs> anyway. But I did want you to uh, mention yeah. and uh, describe to us uh, about your Roswell analogy because basically um, our this is how conspiracy theories come to be, you know, is through this. Yeah, yeah. So we we'd saw love that to analogy hear... and was like, oh, my God, that's amazing and perfect. And it sums up not only how the religion came to be, but how it still yeah. works in modern. So we'd love to you have love for you to describe us your Roswell analogy. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. The basic idea is, you no, know, I mean, I'm going to speak from the perspective of what the actual facts are. So right. we'll start there. Um, I mean, the, the actual fact is uh, there was this sort of uh, this sort of uh, panic going on about flying saucers at the time. And uh, Jesse Marcel finds this debris in the desert and sort of speculates that it's a it's a flying saucer. And then, of course, this flying saucer myth starts. But all he found was some tinfoil and sticks in the desert. Right. Uh, and and <laughs> decades later, we found out that there actually was a top secret project that he was picking up that had fallen and got broken up on the ground. And it was actually a completely different project. It was really a fascinating story in itself because it was they were using sonar buoys on weather balloons to detect nuclear detonations, which is, as a former sonar tech for the Coast Guard, this is a fascinating, like, it's brilliant idea. I was like, that's brilliant. Who thought of that? But anyway, wow. <laughs> um, it was top secret at the time. But that's what he found was this, basically this broken up sonar buoy. And people who don't know, a sonar buoy is really, it's, it's a, a set of microphones that's really super long. Um, and it, it has a buoy that floats on the water and then the this this chain of microphones drops down like hundreds of feet. So it's hundreds of feet long series of microphones. And, and you use that, you can triangulate the location of the origins of sounds because you have this long string of microphones mm. and you have the time difference between where the sound hits each microphone and so on. So the idea of floating one of these up into the atmosphere with the weather balloon is just genius. But anyway, um, <laughs> that, that, that's what actually, that's what it turns out it was. But but even Project apart Mogul from that- Project Mogul is what it uh, was called, correct? Yes. Uh, even apart from that, even if we didn't know that, what we do know, because we have photographs of it, was just sticks and tinfoil. Correct. <laughs> so we know that. Correct. Uh, so <laughs> Super advanced but, alien uh, technology. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, quite indeed. <clears throat> but within 40 years of that, just 40 years, not even 40, I think like 30, but, but definitely yeah. within 40 years, this whole legend had grown up of that a whole spaceship was found. Alien bodies were found in it. They were recovered, and there were alien autopsies of it, and all of this was covered up by the government. So, and there are still to this day millions of people who believe this, who believe the basically the gospel version of what happened, which is this this flying saucer and alien bodies and the whole thing and the Area Fifty One and all of that. But the truth is, it was just the sticks and tinfoil in the desert, and you wonder, like, in an age of mass literacy, mass universal education. Uh, you have mass media, you have photographs, newspapers, government documents. You have the, it's right. one of the best documented eras in history, vastly better documented than the first century, sure, even sure. In, the, in the first century. Um, still, people believe the myth rather than uh, what actually happened. And to me, the analogy is that the sticks and tinfoil in the desert are what Paul talks about, which are these, he's talking about Jesus revealing himself to them inside themselves. Like he's, he's a revel it's a revelatory experience, not a flesh and blood experience, not something you experience with a, a human man. It's, it's a, it's a revelation. And the gospel comes, as he says in Romans 16, the gospel comes, the gospel we know is through revelation and through hidden messages in scripture. And it's through, through that. And we look at like even one Corinthians 15, he says, even the, the burial, uh, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus are known from scripture and then people see him. He doesn't mention people seeing him before any of that. Right. It's only after that that 
have these revelations of Jesus. So, so you have this, the original version is this revelatory Jesus. It's known through hidden messages in scripture uh, and through revelations. And then 40 years later, you get the flying saucer and alien bodies, which is the <laughs> Jesus in Galilee, right? Okay. Um, and then, of course, you know, everybody believes that. And if you imagine that the, that the Roswell believers, the ones who believe the saucer and alien bodies story, are the ones who get to control all survival of evidence and all the condition of all the evidence for a thousand years, what are you going to see on the other end of it? You're going to see pretty much exactly what Christianity looks like with respect to Jesus, right? Because all the evidence of the sticks and tinfoil will be gone, newspapers destroyed, like all of that would not be preserved. What would be preserved is all this evidence. And they would have these Roswell apologists making the exact same arguments for the truth of the <laughs> alien bodies. Absolutely. Like, like, oh, how, within 40 years, that's too fast for legendary development. It can't possibly be false, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> the exact same argument. <laughs> totally see uh, William Lane Craig defending the Roswell myth in a thousand years from now, there will be a counterpart to him doing that, right? If, if that was the way the history went. Um, so yeah, when you see the analogy, you see a lot of the arguments against the mythicist thesis fall down. Like they, they, clearly it doesn't hold up when you look at the way things actually work and in, in, in the way humans actually decide what to believe is not the way that Christian apologists or even secular defenders of historicity understand uh, is the way that people decide what they're going to believe and, and how evidence is going to be preserved. Okay. Well, Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. I do have a couple questions. They're on the fringe uh, side of our things. If you don't mind answering sure. some questions on conspiracies, that'd be awesome. I might know nothing about them, but let's see. Let's go for it. <laughs> well, do you uh, believe in the existence of extraterrestrials at all? I think as a matter of probability, they must exist, but it's yes. extremely unlikely to have been here. That's I agree Boom. with that, but we have a lot of accounts from Mayans, <laughs> and they 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 like to say that. Or Alex, a lot of uh, the the hieroglyphs, uh, especially in the Mayan side, show uh, ancient aliens and such. I don't subscribe too much to that, but it does that hold any water, or is that that's just no, bullshit, no. right? Um, pretty much. Uh, it's overinterpretation of evidence, right? Absolutely, um, and. Right. It's, it's uh, oftentimes, oftentimes it's dishonest. Also, I've noticed that, that people will fake evidence or present it out of context and there's no way they don't know they're doing that. And that's just lying essentially. Um, so you do have to push through the lies and distortions and get to what the facts actually are. Uh, and then once you do that, you start to see that these claims fall apart. Um, I mean, I've seen claims of like helicopters in ancient Egypt. Um, one that I know, uh, that's, that you might not have heard is the, there are these ancient, some of the earliest writings in ancient China that have survived, and again, it's because of a durable medium, were these these turtle inscriptions, these turtle shell in, inscriptions. What what um, uh, oracles and diviners would do is they would have make these prophecies, and they would carve these prophecies into turtle shells. Uh, and this is the earliest Chinese writing we have, uh, earliest writing in China. And uh, and I happened to study when I was at Berkeley. Um, one of the things I studied was ancient Chinese history, and my professor um, at the time uh, was one of my, my favorite mentors in my educational history um, was David Keatley, uh, professor of ancient Chinese history, and he was a specialist in the ancient turtle inscriptions, the turtle shell inscriptions, and he had actually written, it turns out, I found out uh, more I talked to him, that he had written an article for Skeptical Inquirer many, many years ago 
uh, about this claim that there were these pictures of astronauts drawn on the turtle shell, and this was used as an evidence that aliens had visited ancient China. <laughs> right. And, and he had to explain, like, like, no, that's just a Chinese character. It doesn't have anything to do with <laughs> They're just overanalyzing it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. so analyzing it from the perspective of someone who doesn't even know the language, who doesn't even know the context. So you talk to an actual expert who knows where that, what that symbol means and where it came from and how it was constructed. They'll tell you like, no, it's not an astronaut. It's this, that, and the other thing, right? Like it's, it has nothing to do with that. But, um, the, uh, so, so yeah, so I, I've, I've had my experience with that kind of thing. And it does, you have to really go to a real expert, uh, about the evidence and then consult them and, and it can be fascinating to see what what the truth is. Truth is often interesting in and of itself. Uh, once you get past the alien hypothesis, right? But there is this this need this need to to believe that we're special uh, and to find meaning in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. this this race for the the aliens have been here and have tried to explain things to us, and we're just recalcitrant. If only we'd listen to the lessons of the aliens, um, we'd all be better off. Like this this is a narrative that is very comforting to people in the same exact way that. The narratives of God is uh, and 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 so on. So it, it is very much a kind of secular religion. This this aliens hypothesis. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. Uh, we have a lot of listeners that I don't know if they subscribe to Flat Earth, but it's been so popular lately, <laughs> and it does what involve. Is with that, I have to ask about that because the things I see, I'm like. Are we sure people aren't punking us? Like I don't know. <laughs> it, it's, it's hilarious, right? You people know, we're all internet trolls in real life. Is it real? Like, are there people actually saying these things? Yes. It, it's so or, crazy. Or it... We have NBA stars now uh, coming out and saying that they believe in flat Earth. You know, Bill Nye, Neil deGrasse, they're all they're all defending I, it. I saw that. I saw that exchange on Twitter. Um, I, I don't. I don't understand it. I... <laughs> and you know so what? You don't subscribe to it, is what we're getting. You're not a flat earther. No, of course yeah, not. Obviously. Um, <laughs> but you know, what I found is that a lot of uh, these flat earthers believe in Jesus because they say that a creator uh, made a dome over the earth, and that's, you know, part yeah. of the flat earth theory and everything. And it holds, well, would, it's you, weird, right? right? Like you have, the only way you can make coherent sense of a flat earth is with some sort of bizarre intelligent design theory. Like, there's no, yeah, absolutely. there's no theory of the cosmos that can give you a flat earth. I mean, a, like the closest thing to that would be like ring world, right? Like with that, but that's even, that's not flat. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I also is intelligently designed, but not yeah. by a God. Are you but talking anyway. about water world? Uh, uh, yes. Right. No, you um, said ring the, world. Uh, yeah. Isn't that, isn't that the same thing where it's the, it's the Dyson sphere, the inside of the Dyson sphere. Oh, you know what? I never thought of that. Actually, that is uh, actually a really insightful thing to say. Yeah. Um, the water world was, could be a flat earth, you know, I didn't think of that before, right. but that is, you know, hilarious. my biggest problem with water world is they all exist. Yeah. Like if you're on the boat for an afternoon, when you get back on land, you have a hard time walking for a bit. They sure. spend their entire lives on boats. And at the end, all of a sudden they find land and they're chasing each other up mountains. That is fucking bullshit. <laughs> there is no way that these guys who have spent their entire lives on boats can run up a mountain. <laughs> I don't know, like an Stairmaster. Yeah, maybe. Uh, anyway, uh, if you drink your own pee yeah. long enough, like Kevin Costner, then you can. <laughs> you got to drink your own <laughs> pee. That's what. <laughs> that That's how it is. I have to say, I find this flatter thing particularly bizarre. Not just because of the obvious reason that we have, like the evidence now with the photographs. Anyway, anyway, just let's set that aside. Uh, so, right, that you have to. This is, a, 
a solved problem, like a thoroughly <laughs> well-solved problem already by the time of Aristotle. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I teach my main field, like people don't know, like my main focus in my PhD dissertation at, uh, Columbia university was ancient science. Oh, um, so that's actually my, my actual love is ancient science and science and technology are the things I love to talk about, but everybody wants to talk about Jesus. But anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, what got you to Jesus then? Yeah. What did get but you to Jesus? Things... What's that? Him. What did get oh, you to Jesus? Uh, I, uh, th this is a, this is, that's a whole long story into itself. Uh, Basically, sure. my, fans, my fans paid me to do it. Okay, um, fair. <laughs> uh, it collapsed in 2008 and there were no jobs. So, uh, I took a, basically a postdoc uh, research grant to do Jesus, um, which was fascinating. I learned a lot and it was really sure great. Is. Uh, yeah. The book on the historicity of Jesus for those uh, who do eventually look at it, um, you'll notice it's filled with lots of interesting facts and background knowledge about the ancient world. It is very useful as a reference book. Even if you don't buy into the Jesus historicity question, you don't, you, you don't care about whether he was a myth or not. Even for counter-apologetics and, and or for personal knowledge, you'll find tons of useful data in there and useful knowledge of the ancient world. I found that very fascinating, and, and so it was really rewarding research project. But it was basically doing a second dissertation, essentially. Wow. Um, and similarly, proving history, um, I'm really proud of that because it's really, uh, you know, it's philosophy of history, getting to what is the actual logic of historical reasoning. Um, so I think that's very important unto itself, and it's very useful in many other fields and subjects, not just the historicity of Jesus. But my first dissertation was ancient science. Yeah, back to that attitude part. towards the uh, ancient scientists and scientists in the early Roman Empire uh, was my specialty. But to do that, I studied ancient science. And, and one of the things that I encountered, and this was also related to uh, Christian apologetics, because Christian apologists often say ridiculous things about the ancient world, such as that Christianity was responsible for science. If it wasn't for Christianity, we wouldn't have science. Um, and I've written against that. It's ridiculous. But it leads to a lot of interesting rabbit holes to dig to to you know, crawl down and find out things about how science worked in the ancient world, and one of which was this idea of the sphericity of the earth, which was so mainstream that even uh, most religious people adopted the spherical earth concept. Um, there were still flat earthers. There were some, uh, even in Christians, uh, Lactantius, through the the tutor of Constantine's children, famous uh, for his ridiculous rejection of of the science on the round earth and he, he argued that the earth couldn't possibly be a sphere it had to be flat because if it was a sphere that means there's upside down people on the other side of it and that's just ridiculous uh and so that, <laughs> or maybe not maybe just, it's it's not completely flat like a coin or something maybe it's just flat on the top and it's just like rocks hanging you know like a <laughs> yeah. floating platform top, in mega man or something on top of yes, a turtle well there can't be rain falling up. This is just, no, this can't right, be. Right, exactly. Uh, of course, scientists of the time fully understood the concept of gravitation towards the center, so a spherical Earth made total sense, right? But they had, they had six empirical proofs that were, it's a really good example of having good, well-found uh, empirical evidence, um, six separate lines of evidence that independently corroborate each other. It's, it's like one of the most elegant examples of a superbly well-proved fact about the world, the sphere, awesome. sphericity of the earth. And you can teach people lots about science and about mathematics and stuff about just, just showing them the six proofs uh, that the ancients found and, and, and what they argued for and how they discovered the sphericity of the earth. And it's so sad to see people like reject all that because it's so fascinating and cool. Like this is some cool right. ass shit. Yes. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> agreed. Agreed. No, agreed. Place in my heart because of that, because of my study of ancient science. Awesome. Wow. You know, Doctor, you've been awesome. We do have just one more. We'll let you go. Yeah, we keep saying that. We realize your time is precious, but we we might have to do a part two because we we both we're having such a good time with you, man. All three of us brought notebooks full of stuff. <laughs> you've been totally accurate in your count of questions, so we're good. So don't no worries there. Awesome. Uh, and yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to come back anytime. Thank you. Um, 9-11. Now, do you believe <laughs> – I know, this is crazy, but we ask all our, uh, all our guests That's this. That's true. We do you believe every... the narrative that we were given about 9-11 at all? I don't even know what you mean by that. Uh, the, the NIST's report on, on 9-11, do you – You think you... it went down the same, exactly the way we were told it went down, or yes. was there some shady business – well, I, I mean, I, I don't know if there's shady business accusations that I haven't heard, so I can only speculate on that. Um, I mean, the things I've heard about the idea of controlled demolition, of uh, things like that, no, I don't believe those things. Neither um, do we. I, that, yeah, I've actually talked to actual experts about these kinds of things. Um, <laughs> no, the, the evidence is, the narrative is pretty accurate. Um, the, the one place where there is dodgy stuff is... And this is well documented. I don't think I think it's fairly mainstream, which is that uh, the Bush administration, had it not been incompetent and so hell bent on trying to find excuses to get into Iraq, um, actually had adequate warning of this. Now I don't think they actually knew it was going to happen. I don't think they knew that the twin towers were going to fall. Um, I don't think they knew that that was actually going to occur. But they did ignore a lot of evidence, and I think it was because right. they just dismissed it as irrelevant. Um, and I think that was just. This, this thing that happens throughout history, especially with our governments or governments in general, is just it's just incompetence or underestimating, um, was, maybe. Yeah, underestimating. Yeah. And you have to give you have to give that some fair credit. Like the the Twin Towers were brought down ultimately with a couple of box cutters. Let's be honest. Yes, sir. It, it's it's really the, the stupidest low rent fucking terrorist attack ever <laughs> conceived. by man, And it just just accidentally succeeded. Um, I mean, they were just lucky. And really, the only reason they were lucky is because the the traditional model of uh, hijacking was hostage situations. So everyone played that out as if it was a hostage situation. No one thought they were going to fly it into buildings. If if the if the people on the planes and, and of course, the people on one of the planes did realize this or at least thought it. Right. Uh, Ninety three. Right. Down. But if the other planes, if the other people on the planes realized what they were going to do and that, that it wasn't going to be a hostage situation, it was going to be a suicide situation, the mission would have failed. And right. that's why it can never be replicated, right? This can never happen again because everybody now knows, oh, they can use this as a missile. Fuck those guys. We're taking them out. And so uh, <laughs> so that, that's why it can never be replicated. But it, it was such – and, and you look at all the other al-Qaeda shit that al-Qaeda has pulled, like fucking underwear bomber, shoe bomber. Are you serious? <laughs> now we have this to check like the, our shoes at the airport. Right. This is the most ridiculous low-rent shit. Like yeah, these are the yeah. stupidest plots ever. <laughs> the, the, you know, the al-Qaeda is not a great threat. Like, no, uh, they're even not. The We're so scared gun... and they're attacking us with shoes and box cutters. <laughs> I mean Timothy, <laughs> Timothy fucking McVeigh was way more brilliant than anybody right. in the history of al-Qaeda. Uh, right? So like exactly. he accomplished – tons more than my problem is how were Uh, these planes hijacked for so long and we didn't do like it wasn't like they were hijacked and immediately veered into the buildings like they flew off of their path for quite a while hostage hostage situations so everybody's assumed 
there would be a negotiation. There would be wasn't a, aware. special forces would come in and take him out, or there would be they would get out because of a deal or something. No one thought that they would be used as weapons, and 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 now that we know they can be used as weapons, um, there was one other example that was uh, a mission that was thwarted by the Clinton administration. We know um, there was so the the big deal, the the big innovation of the Twin Tower attacks was the multiple simultaneous big atrocities. So the idea of having multiple planes hit multiple targets. So Pentagon, right. uh, Twin Towers. I can't remember what the, the plane that fell down was supposed to hit. I, it was supposed it was, to go uh, to D.C. somewhere. Yeah, maybe White yeah. House. So, so the idea was to hit multiple targets at once because no one could ignore that, right? So it's just like, wow, sure, it's supposed yeah. to shock people. The point of terror is to create terror to motivate action. Um, but uh, there was a similar plan where there was a multiple planes were going to be uh, taken out with uh, liquid bombs because they'd figured out a way to get liquid bombs in. And the well, Clinton administration, to... through their intelligence network, caught this and thwarted it before it happened. And that was actually much more clever than the the actual attacks that occurred in 2001. Uh, but we caught it and took it out, and it didn't happen. So then they dumped it also... down, and we decided... Well, that's why was... we instituted... The... That's why we have this liquids policy now. Um, right, cause yeah. Of that, cause we know... Oh, they could they could smuggle liquid explosives on, um, but e even though they still could, like there's there's so much there's so much shit they could do. Uh, let me tell you an example. Like here is the fucking NRA. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, so here this is the situation we're in, in here. Thanks to the NRA, is that I right now, me myself. Let's say I decide like I want to kill the president. I want to kill okay. the president and the vice president. Why sure. not? I'll find a dude who kill the vice president. I'll kill the president easy it's easy fucking peasy all i've got to do is go to a gun show and buy a 50 caliber barrett sniper sure. rifle i've got it in one mile effective range it goes through any bulletproof anything so bulletproof car doesn't mean it doesn't matter president's dead you know so this is a president killer this gun is a president killer and we in this country make it legal for anybody to own it and still al-qaeda is too fucking stupid to just buy a fucking barrett and use it <laughs> Like th this is how dumb these people are. But well, anyway, <laughs> we say that. But look what they uh, look what they accomplish with box cutters. Yeah, and we're so scared so, of ISIS over yeah. here. They don't even yeah. realize that. Well, that that's especially funny because ISIS is the best thing to ever happen for domestic terrorism, because what's happening is like Trump talks about worried about the ISIS terrorists coming here, but no, what's actually happening but never is says the a thing about any of the right the terrorists that are here are right. leaving to go fight for ISIS in Syria. Like, this is the best thing ever. Like, this is like, <laughs> yeah, here. this is great. Leave our country. Um, and, and the reality is, is that ISIS is not Syrian. The, the ISIS army, like very few Syrians are part of that. Like, it's not really a Syrian army. It's a hodgepodge army of all these disaffected, you know, fanatics from all these other countries who have come to Syria to try and create this caliphate there. And all the Syrians are running the fuck away from these dudes because they don't want to have anything to do with right. them. Right. It just happens so they, to be so there. The, the refugees are not the ISIS people. They're the they're the people who don't <laughs> trying to get ISIS. away. <laughs> right. And and meanwhile, like the terrorists who actually support ISIS are leaving this country to go fight for ISIS in Syria. Anyway, so this is yeah. <laughs> a whole other. Whole yeah, other that could topic. be it. I actually made a note at one point that the Gospels kind of seem like the Trump organization. We just make wild claims with no factual backing. <laughs> That's just to prove our point. We're getting, we're, yeah, we're getting into it. The infancy gospels. Do you know those? We, I don't know. Have you read I'm those? I'm not familiar. 
Oh, man. Second century, uh, some people wrote, these Christians wrote these infancy gospels, which tell the story of Jesus as a toddler. Oh. Oh, yeah. You know about those? His actual life. No, I don't know about him. I'm just like, oh, there's actual stories of Jesus' life. It's not, he was born and then immediately 30. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Other than that Willem Dafoe movie, we know nothing. (laughs) Well, well, to be fair, Luke throws in a 12-year-old story. But anyway, oh, okay. apart from that, the bar mitzvah story. But, <laughs> the yeah, bar mitzvah that. story, that's right. Oh, God, who had to that's do right. that to bar Jesus? Mitzvah. <laughs> this is bar mitzvah. No, I think that's literally what it is. But anyway, um, the uh, no, the infancy gospels are horrible. The, 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 so well, yeah. it reveals this, this sort of weird idea of how Christians of the time imagined greatness of what made Jesus great. And it wasn't what we think today. It wasn't like, oh, he's the nicest guy ever. No. The, the ancient idea of greatness was the biggest, most evilest, most uh, careless, evil fucker that you could be and still be righteous <laughs> made you awesome and great. And so we have this toddler Jesus who's walking around town and like a kid bumps into him, like hits his shoulder and he's annoyed. And so he... He says, may you never, uh, or like, may, may you never walk again, or may you never live again, or something, and he, he immediately dies. Oh, no. He just fig trees that kid. <laughs> he fig trees that kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he does this constantly. So whenever somebody annoys him, he just kills them. And so the, and this is in the gospel, the gospel of the infancy of Jesus. And so uh, all the, the townspeople come to Joseph, you know, Jesus's father, and says, dude, like, you got to do something about your kid. He's killing our children. <laughs> Like, what can I do? He's like, I don't know. What can I do? (laughs) What am I supposed to do? The guy's fucking Jesus. What am I going to do? And so he tries to tell Jesus, like, please don't kill the children in town. (laughs) And and Jesus says, like, how dare you tell me what to do? You know, I'm great. I'm the greatest, whatever. I'm God and so on. And, and like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be merciful to you because I know you're not, you know, not what you're doing, but, but wow. I, I could totally kill you too, you know. Oh man! <laughs> well, imagine terrible twos. Yeah, but you know, with Jesus, or, or like preteen into early teen years with Jesus powers. Omnipotent and omniscient, but no, but emotionally is still a toddler. Right. That's exactly what he wrote. Like the and it's horrifying. Oh, God. story. It's scarier than the Omen. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Christians were writing in the second century about Jesus. It's it's wild. Well, no wonder they left that out. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't exist in the first century, right? Exactly. It's not that they left it out. It's that uh, it wasn't popular in the uh you know the final con- construction of the, God, the new testament really really love to read those though i would have a great time with those i feel <laughs> you can find them online. it's the infancy gospel of thomas is the most complete infancy um gospel. there's yeah there's multiple redactions i think the the translation from the arabic is the most complete i'm not sure but anyway you can find all the versions online like you google infancy gospel of thomas you'll find it we will look uh, for I it definitely will. was was jesus ever actually a carpenter by the way, like he's always known as being a carpenter, but like, did he ever build a table or some cabinets well, notice, or something? I mean, of course, granting that he existed, right, uh, right, if right. We assume right. that he in the stories. I we're guess. not not sure for two reasons. One is one ver- one gospel says he's the carpenter. Another gospel says he's the son of the carpenter. So that Joseph, Joseph is the was right. So some of the gospels themselves don't agree on whether Jesus was the carpenter himself. Okay. Um, another problem is that in the Greek carpenter 
actually means like architect. It means like maker, um, builder of things. Ah. It actually does not, right. It does not specifically refer to woodworking. Like normally you would specify a woodworker. Basically the word means worker. So it means like, is it woodworker or iron worker or stone worker? The same word would exist, but you put the adjective in front of it. But this was a common word for God as the creator. He's the worker. He's the great maker, the carpenter of the universe, essentially, oh. right? And when you look at the original story in Mark, uh, if, if I'm getting it right, in Mark, they say, you know, is like, uh, who is this guy? He does these amazing things with his hands, meaning the miracles. Um, he, isn't he just the carpenter? And okay. when you I... look at that in terms of like allegory, this is a joke. It, it means like the, the Jews are admitting that he's the creator, but don't see that they're doing it. Uh, it, okay. it so it's intentional. So it wasn't, right? so that, like, it wasn't literally. Perfect. Right. I don't think it was intended literally. I don't think Mark intended that literally. So even if Jesus existed, I don't think it was meant to mean that Jesus was actually a carpenter. He was wrote it? this story, have this idea that like, oh, isn't he just a carpenter? Oh, yes, he is the carpenter. Right. Because like, okay. I always wondered, um, and maybe this is out of line. That but would, uh, would right. That, I mean, that irony is. I'm sorry. I keep over talking over you. <laughs> That's all right. Go ahead. Uh, just, just for an off-color joke, I was always curious if you would have used nine-inch nails when making tables. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I'm yeah. so happy you wow. did that, Nick. I had. I'm <laughs> sorry. There is a way to answer that question, and if you wanted to take that question literally, uh, we actually have a crucifixion nail. Um, oh really? The, the, yeah, yeah. We have it. It, uh, it was. There was a particular Jew, Yohanan, uh, someone nailed his ankle with a crucifixion nail, and the nail fused with the bone. Ooh. So usually the nail would be removed, but when he was removed from the cross and then reburied, so what would happen is you'd be buried, you'd be crucified, you'd be buried in the, the criminal's graveyard, the graveyard for the criminals. Uh, and then when the flesh rotted from the bones, you were considered purified, and the Jews would come and collect your bones and rebury you in an ossuary, uh, a bone collector, a, a bone box, a, mm-hmm. a bone collector. Okay. Um, the, the thinking was that, you know, it, it's more convenient for God to have all the bones in one place when he wants to resurrect you. But, uh, because, you know, <laughs> weird. Out. A darkness style. So, uh, <laughs> I'm not joking. This is, this was the theory. Um, and, and pe- multiple bones, multiple people would be thrown into the same bone box because then the assumption was that God could figure out to sort them out oh, and he wouldn't sure, get confused. But, um, but anyway, so his bones were thrown in there, and so we actually have the crucifixion nail with a piece of wood torn from the cru- the crucifix wow. uh, to the bone. So we actually have an example of that. So and there are dimensions of that. So you could probably find it online and find what the actual length of a crucifixion nail is. <laughs> nine uh, inch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's nine, but I, I'm not sure. So you, you could oh, certainly right. find out. Uh, that would have to be a very yeah. big table. I could t- I could tell. <laughs> Stories about ancient nails, by the way. So that that would be a whole other talk. Well, that'll this, be this Dr. Richard ancient Carrier Part 2. Technology. Yeah, yeah. I would love to do that. <laughs> well, Dr. Richard Carrier, thank you so much for joining us, man. It's been amazing. It's been a great time. Yes, sir. Yeah. We've had some yeah, fun. It's been great. Thank you very much, Dr. Richard Carrier. If you guys want to check him out, check out drrichardcarrier.info. Let's play a game. What do you guys think? Let's, uh, let's oh, play yeah. some Idiot or Idiom. That's right. Idiot, Idiom. Idiot, Idiom. Idiot, Idiom. What's that? Idiot, Idiom. Say what? Idiot, What's it called? Idiot, <laughs> Idiot, 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 I didn't catch that. 
wait. I think I understand. Oh, now I understand. That's right. Welcome to Ooh. another edition of Idiot or Idiom. America's 17th favorite game show. It's probably number one at this point, but we haven't, we haven't <laughs> checked the ratings. We We're are going ratings. to play our amazing game, Idiot or Idiom, for the Golden Jazz Master. That's right. Currently owned by Coach Elise in San Diego. Although she hasn't come to pick it up, so it is so, still here. So we're going to go ahead and steal that up, and, ah, and it, well. it's, it's undisputed at this point. So our <laughs> homeboy, Matthew Dozal, is here. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining, man. Hello, everyone. He was doing awesome for our interview. He brought um, Dr. Richard Carrier to our attention. That's right. And as you guys heard. This whole episode happened because of him. Oh, no big deal. And we thank you, dude. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, you know. And yeah, for us to give you a thanks, we're going to let you play our amazing game, Adrian, for the Golden Jazz Master. Now, let me explain to you how this game works. What is an idiom? An idiom is a phrase that is no longer its literal meaning. So we can have something like sick as a dog, which doesn't mean you're like sick like a dog but there is a literal meaning behind it. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you an idiom, like sick as a dog. We'll give you what we know it as, like you're very sick. And then my buddy Nick here is going to give you an origin story. This is where the game gets difficult. He's either going to make it up or give you the actual origin, and it's up to us to determine if it's true or false. So let's go ahead and play the go. game. That's Are you ready, works. Matthew? Yes, sir. Let's play Idiot Oridium for the Golden Jazz uh, Master. Lois, I would I would like to, to kindly request that from here on out, when you give examples during the explanation of a game, you give examples maybe using idioms that we've already used before because Sick as a Dog was on my list because we haven't covered that one I've yet. used Sick as a Dog the last three times, I think. So no, you did not. It's your fault. <laughs> right. Well, let's We're go. Gonna fight. Let's so, hear your first, number one. First... And foremost, cold turkey. In a case, ooh, John Lennon has a song about it. Cold turkey means you're. There it is. Now it's in. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, we didn't have it in a second ago. On the run. That's right. Uh, cold turkey. Quitting something cold turkey means you're not using uh, you're not using Nicorette gum or you're not using a different kind of <laughs> opioid to get you off of heroin. You're just giving that shit up cold turkey right away. Just stopping. Yeah, you're not just healthy. giving something right. up immediately. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Another so, side note about that song, it has one of, I think, the best recorded fake orgasms in, in musical history at the end of it. But that's for our, re our listeners to go check out on their own. That's right. Uh, so, that's what cold turkey means now. You quit something cold turkey, just straight up. Now, so... What's the origin? Uh, origin is because the symptoms of withdrawal make an addict feel like cold turkey. Like their skin gets cold and kind of gets the, the goosebumps like a cold turkey, you know? If you've ever, ever had a cold uh, turkey when you're prepping it for right. Thanksgiving dinner, it's... It's got the goosebumps and it's all cold and icy as you're basting it before you stick it in the oven and all that. This is interesting. Matthew, what do you think? Is that true or false? That sounds pretty accurate, but I 
I'm going to stick with false. I'd want to say that this is true. So let's go ahead and go to the judges. I voted. Let's go ahead and go with the first answer there. He said false. Yeah. Is this true or false? Wait. Well, oh, yeah. He said false, right? He said false. Yeah. Is he correct? or He is correct. Oh, that's how I roll. He got... I, I'm, dude, I'm which, so bad at this song. At uh, this which, game. now, I mean, to be fair, it's, it's, it, there's, there's a bit of truth. Like, that's... Okay. I mean, that, that's the correlation. But it originally, cold turkey meant to speak bluntly. And now it refers to drugs, but I'm how, gonna give you the cold where, where turkey. This this idiom sucks. Where where <laughs> it came from is that it takes no time to prep cold turkey. I guess. Actually, interesting. I don't know so what it takes to there, prep. There's, there's no prep. Turkey. There's no work. There's nothing that goes into cold turkey. To make like a sandwich. To make it. a sandwich or whatever. So that's yeah. actually where it started. The whole correlation, which is now why people like there is that correlation about. The skin of a cold turkey and the skin of an addict, but that is not where it comes from. I usually just so, get itchy. When he I, is right. <laughs> when you yeah. eat turkey, I smoke rock. I, I smoke I rock. Ah, Joe Rogan, I smoke rock. All right, let's keep playing Idiot Idiom for the Golden Jazz Master. All right. One of my granddad's favorites. Your ears are burning. Oh, I love this one. Ears are burning. I say this one all the time. My ears are burning. Someone says your name. about you. Someone's you, talking yeah. about you. You know exactly when they're talking about right? you. Where does this come Here's from? Burning. So, ancient Romans. They <laughs> <laughs> ancient Romans. Uh, they had a group called the Augers. Now, okay. I don't know if it's Augur as in like the the oscillating thing that digs ground up or not, but it's pronounced the same at least. They were religious officials, and they honestly believed that if your left ear was burning, that meant there was bad intent being talked about you if your right ear was burning then you were being praised Ooh, so that's the origin that's the origin let me go ahead and go first on this one okay your boy low snick is going to say that this is true all right matthew what do you say i also think it's true you we both it's say true. it's true let's go ahead and look at the judges is this true that oh, is correct. It. That yeah. is how this shit went down. That's right. Excellent. Well, All let's. Right. I mean, I guess we don't need to hear an origin, so let's that, go that ahead and play number three. Number of three. Idiot or idiom for the golden jazz master. Piece of cake. Piece of cake. Piece that means of cake. To me, that means it's super <laughs> it's easy. easy. Oh, yeah. Super easy. Not Effortless. just easy. Effortless, thank you. What is the origin? Origin is uh, because uh, uh, cake is that effortless, like cutting through cake, eating cake. Super easy. Super easy. If Well, I guess maybe there's a fucked up cake that's burnt and hard to cut. But still, a, a cake is all light and fluffy, and yeah, it's... And everybody loves cake. And That's it's, where it comes from. Yes, exactly. So, Matthew, what do you think? Is that true or false? As El Presidente would say, wrong. <laughs> you are wrong I'm going to go ahead and say that that is false as well Let's go ahead and go to the judges Judges What do we have? We said false Jeez, Oops, You I are both correct That is false Oh uh, shit! It comes from 1936 American poet Ogden Nash In his writing The Primo's Path Wrote Her pictures in the papers now And life's a piece of cake <laughs> 
That's right. <laughs> Meaning it's sweet and wonderful, and that's all it is. That's all. You know, a lot oh, of that yeah. shit comes from literature. Which it has is nothing great. to do with how easy cake is to deal with. It's just, <laughs> oh, she's here, and cake. now everything is sweet and wonderful, and it's cake. That's right. Let's play. We got a couple more for you. Let's play Idiot or Idiom for the Golden Jazz that's Master. Right. I was singing along. Sorry. Wrong end of the stick. You ever get the wrong end of the stick? Yeah. Sure. Fuck, man. All the time. <laughs> wrong end of the stick. That oh, means like you, uh, the... you got fucked over, bro. Right. Right. Essentially, right? You got with fucked. The, with the stick. With <laughs> Maybe not literally not, with a stick, not, not, but potentially what is, what that could the, be, yes. What is the meaning you have written down? Uh, origin is that... No, what is the meaning? Oh, the, no, that is the meaning. You got the wrong... You, you grabbed the wrong end of the stick. You got a raw deal. You... Or you, you know, you fucked up. Okay. Or I'm something down. fucked up I'm, happened I'm, to you. I'm totally Wrong down with you fucked up. Okay. So what's <laughs> right. the origin? Uh, ancient Romans had a stick with a with a sponge at one end that they used to clean themselves after shitting. And oh. if you were sitting there at whatever their version of a toilet was, and you reached down to clean yourself after a shit, you might grab. The wrong end of the stick. Oh, oh man. And that would be, <laughs> yeah. We can call it Uranus. Right. <laughs> and it, it, I mean, those, it was just the stick that sat by the toilet. So everybody that used that toilet, guests and everybody in the castle would be, or, you know, whatever, would be using the same thing. So it's it's not like this is a sanitary product. This is an accumulation of multiple people's butts on this. So if you grab the wrong end of that stick, you're... Okay. You're okay. up shit creek with a turd for a paddle, for sure. <laughs> I'm going to go, which is another great idiom. <laughs> I, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make a guess, a wild guess that this is true. Matthew, what do you think? I think it sounds true, so I'll go with true. We're going to both go with true. Judges, are we correct or we you got it? So we are on a roll today. Uh, I just want to point out I have that an a plus. Matthew is four for four. Dude, nobody's been perfect. Nobody's this. done perfect. We have one more. <laughs> I was more. the reigning champ for so long, and I never even went perfect. We have That's one amazing. more to go. All right. Let's see if he gets so a if, perfect score. You're at three, so if he gets this wrong and you get it right, then it's tied. Well, I feel good because you just jinxed him. So let's go ahead and play <laughs> idiot or idiot for the golden jazz master. <laughs> oh, I crossed over Mad as a hatter. Hmm. Ooh, mad as a hatter. Well, that's something I definitely haven't heard ever, but because of the story <laughs> of Alice in Alice Wonderland, in we that all know the... what a mad hatter is. Right. Someone that's hectic and is late for everything. Oh. No, mad hatter wasn't late. The rabbit was late. Oh, correct. I'm thinking of the rabbit. Mad the the mad hatter was just batshit mad. Kind of crazy. Kooky. <laughs> Hence right. the name, right? <laughs> Right, What's running the that origin? crazy tea party celebrating unbirthdays. So that that is Alice in Wonderland is where it comes from because the the Hatter character was mad, not in the not in the sense of angry, but mad as it used to mean, as in fuck. Like I hate these kinds. I really hate these kinds. You know, of when idioms. you're driven mad. I really hate these idioms because I hate literal ones, and he didn't give us any so, literal ones today. And this is probably the first literal one of the day because Matt. Is our guest? Let's go ahead, Matthew. What is is it true or false? Does it come from Alice in Wonderland? I'll have to say true. 
Oh man, I well I have to say false just to make sure Hedge I get bets. it right or wrong. <laughs> I'm opposing him. Let's go ahead and go with my answer. Judges, You're am saying I false. true or false? I'm saying false. You're saying false. Am and I right you or wrong? are correct. Oh, yes. That gives us a tie. We are at a tie. Oh, so, <laughs> oh shit. The this origin is- actually. Sorry. Sorry. Let the music play. Jump, yeah, jump the gun on the transition music. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, so the origin actually comes from 17th century France when they used mercury to make the felt of their hats. Like in the lining of the hats, they put mercury. So what? guys who would wear top hats would get mercury poisoning Shit. and go mad. They go, as in it's crazy, a mad hatter. Because you're getting mercury poisoning. <laughs> so actually the character in Alice in Wonderland was made off of that. He yeah. came about because of the Mad Hatters in real life. That the guys that are great. getting mercury oh, poisoning. Oh, great idiom. Great idiom. So. We are going to so a tiebreaker. tie. Oh, Let's listen to the tiebreaker while we play. Play for the idiot. <laughs> Sorry. The Golden Jazz Master. All right. This one in classic Nick style has got a long story behind Here we it. go. Two birds with one stone. Oh, I love this idiom. That two means birds you're, with one. You're taking stone. care of two events or two things you need to take right. up with one like swoop. Just the other day, I had to deposit some checks, but I also needed to order a new debit card. So I went to the bank and killed, killed two, two birds, birds with, with one, one stone. stone. That is awesome. Right on. Right on. So we all know what that means, right? Nick, what is the origin? The origin in Greek mythology. Goes all the way back. Now maybe we should have had Doctor Richard Carrier on for this one. Uh, he would love this. Probably. Fuck. We should. Greek mythology. Next I hope time. I'm saying these this this name right. Daedalus. Well, no one knows. I'll let I'll let sure. Daedalus <laughs> and Icarus. I'll accept it. Daedalus and definitely Icarus. Now they were held captive by King Minos. Minos. M i n o s. Minos. 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 Minus. I think. Minus. Yeah, it's uh, So they were held Maybe. captive in a high tower. And now all they could see were the high walls around and a bunch of birds flying overhead. You know, vultures scavenging, waiting for people to die in this captivity. So, uh, Daedalus formed this plot that if he could get these birds down and get their wings, they could fly out. And we've all heard this story of Icarus and with the wings. With the right? wick, wax wings, he flew too right. close to the close sun. Close to the sun, and the wax melted his wings. Fell off, and he fell to his death. But this is before that. So, through a clever throw, Daedalus was able to hit a bird, and then it ricocheted and hit a second bird. And he was able to take out two birds with one stone, thus giving both him and Icarus wings so they could fly out of King Minus. Minus? How do we decide it was? Minus, I think. I'm going to go with Minus. Sounds good. Because, we need rich, doctor, because of this clever throw. Dr. Richard, if you were listening to this, sorry if we're butchering Yeah, oh my God, he's, he knows, please be on Japanese whiskey at the moment. <laughs> he he definitely knows this, his Greek mythology. Right, and I'm torturing these. Other than Icarus, I'm torturing So now that names. we know the origin, Matt, you are we are tied, but let's go ahead and go with you, my friend. Is this true or false? I'll say true. You know what? Because you said true, I was gonna say true too. But we need a good game here. I'm gonna I've go got ahead. More, if you, we need to keep tiebreaking. I'm gonna go ahead go and with say. Your gut. Go I'm with gonna. Your gut. I'm gonna go, go ahead and say. Gut. It's not that I'm going with my gut. It's just we need to end the game if it's gonna happen. <laughs> right. I'm gonna oppose him by saying false. 
So let's go with that Matthew's answer, which he said is true. Judges, is that true or false? Just you kidding. Oh, he, you did. he is the winner he of the gold in Jazz Master. Now I have a fun note, just like uh, you know, like I like I do, like I did with a pig's eye uh, last shit last time. <laughs> there, some people want to put it back to the Chinese. Why? Why? Because the Chinese have a saying of one stone, two birds, and another one says one arrow, double vultures. Ooh. So the Chinese, in case there's somebody listening who wants to dispute or say, oh, motherfucker, no, that comes from the Chinese. However, ancient Greek mythology, I feel, came before the Chinese. Now, maybe if we can fact check, I just wanted to throw that out in case our listeners wanted to try to but now we have dispute. to figure out the origins of two girls, one cup. Uh, Brazil. Brazil. That's all. It, Brazil plus internet equals oh, I fucking two love girls, you, one Matthew. cup. <laughs> you guys, that's it. Thank you guys for listening to the show. Matt wins the... He is the winner of the Golden Jazz Master. He is, that is well-deserved. Right. He... He almost had a perfect score, didn't he? Almost, yeah. Almost. Closer we're, than anybody. We're still waiting for that perfect score. Matthew, do you have anything to plug while we're anything here? Anything you want to want the listeners to check out? Um, just check out Richard Carrier. He's uh, really intelligent, and all of his work is very interesting. So, And which we Our all know that. Our most humble guest ever. The only guest who has ever had a plug for, for somebody, somebody else. else. <laughs> yes, sir. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Don't Nick, check out me. <laughs> don't check him out. Nick, what are you doing this weekend? Uh, well, tomorrow night I'm going to be playing at Dublin Square in Fort Worth, and then Saturday I'll be in Carrollton, Carrollton, Texas. I hope I'm, I'm saying that it's, right. It's, it's a bit north, kind of a northern uh, suburb of Dallas for TexFest. TexFest, where he's going to be playing with TJ Broskoff. Both, both of them will be TJ Broskoff shows. Broskoff. I keep Broskoff. saying that incorrectly. Yes, TJ, don't say it Broskoff. I, uh, I Broskoff. have to because I see bro in there. I'm like, Broskoff. <laughs> awesome, dude. You guys, thank you guys for joining us. If you enjoy our content, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star rating. We're also on Facebook. We'd love your likes. We also really love word of mouth. We have a lot of people that listen to us, and all they do is tell other people about the show. And now that you've heard us talk to Richard Carrier, I'm sure there's a lot more people you want to show this to. So thank you guys very much for joining us. Uh, didn't we get a, our first five-star rating? We did get a five-star rating. We got a five-star rating. Let, uh, I mean, we. I know we got to end this because we're going super long, but we need to call out our very first five-star rating. We need to... Give props to whoever the listener is that You're actually went right. through so with this. If you go onto iTunes, which is very simple, go onto your iTunes. I mean, even almost if you don't everybody own has one, iTunes, right? Almost everybody. Even if you don't have it, it's very simple. You just go ahead and you make your own little account, and then you come on, and then you just search emergency exit, and you will find our show and you can subscribe to it which will be amazing so let's go ahead and li i'm gonna go ahead and read our five star rating yeah we, we got a five star that's right and it comes from conspiracy watchdog it says great diverse podcasts it's not just limited to conspiracies plus los has a six stash and the brew world order for the win and that is an amazing fucking review i must say there is right. one other review it says it's four stars 
but five. Four. It says four stars, but five. That's right. Oh, well played. <laughs> who was that one? That I don't know who that is. That's uh, F, anonymous. It's FJM five. FJM five. But that was in our earlier days. It's oh, November okay. 9th. so that is way back there. So, that's pretty funny. So of... if you guys have a, a, if you guys just want to rate us, go ahead on iTunes and shout us out. Give us some shit. We don't mind. Now we're, we're fine with that. We're also on Tumblr, and Make I want to. fun of us. I want to start doing some listener posts. That's right. And maybe we should start right There's, now. There's there's a lot of stuff that we want to do, but we need listener interaction before we can really do it. Well, let's 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 throw right? a post out right now. Okay. The post will be. I'm gonna post this up. Did Jesus actually exist? Ah. So go ahead on to emergency exits uh, emergency exits Tumblr, and I'm gonna have this poll up there. Uh, go ahead and answer it, and next week when we are on, we're going to go ahead and read all read, those answers. We're going to read all the answers. All right. Matt so, was pretty smart about not giving out his personal information. That's like, right. Like, you and I are putting ourselves out there. He's <laughs> like, nah, I don't want the crazy people to listen to this. I don't well, need that shit Well, you know, it life. goes <laughs> back to what Richard Carrier was saying. It's like a lot of people don't want to fight the Jesus thing because of what's going to happen to them. And maybe that's what's going on with my buddy Matthew. I doubt it. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on uh, social media and whatnot. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. For sure. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. For Nick, for Matthew, my name is Los. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>